The following sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. This is our study in 2 Corinthians, The Call to Church Action, Part 25. Today's title is Steadfastness in Service. And our text is 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 15. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. Will you turn with me to the second epistle of Paul to the Corinthians? Chapter 11. Today we celebrate a great event. Forty-five years of God's goodness to us in the ministry of radio. Eight years of God's goodness to us in the ministry of television. And the whole day is dedicated to thinking not only of God's goodness to us, but of God's purpose in us and through us. And I have not felt led to deviate from my usual procedure of expounding God's word, and particularly in the series we are pursuing at the present time from the epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, second letter, and this 11th chapter today. The message before us is a rather unique one. It might not be one I would have chosen had it not come right in the sequence of the teaching. But I feel the Lord has a word to say to my own heart, first of all, and to the hearts of all of us here who look across the land today, particularly within our churches, longing to see the emergence of true service for Jesus Christ, and not only of service, but of a corresponding quality, steadfastness. The great theme then throughout these next few weeks is that of steadfastness, commencing this morning. And however well we've done in the past, God's calling us to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So with that in mind, I want you to turn with me then to this 11th chapter. And I want you to notice that having dealt with the essentials of Christian leadership, Paul now turns to the equally important matter of the credentials of Christian leadership. The key verse in this whole section is chapter 12 and verse 12. Look at it for a moment. Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Now the important word to notice in this verse is the one translated patience, or more accurately, literally, steadfastness. Steadfastness. Paul is telling us that above everything else, the supreme credential in Christian work is that of steadfastness. The supreme credential in Christian leadership is that of steadfastness. Taking that as our clue, we find that the apostle has in mind steadfastness in five distinct areas. We begin with number one this morning. Here they are, so that you can think ahead in the week's that are before us. Steadfastness in duty, that's this morning. Steadfastness in difficulty, that's the next paragraph. 
steadfastness in difficulty, steadfastness in dependence, steadfastness in dedication, and lastly, steadfastness in discipline. Now, our first consideration this morning is that of steadfastness in duty, or if you prefer, service. Still with his critics in mind, Paul is answering some of the accusations that have been leveled against him. He's being blamed for not having followed through on his pastoral responsibilities. He's being told that having picked up a job, he hasn't gone through with it to its final conclusion. So Paul in these opening verses shows how false the allegation is. According to steadfastness and duty, Paul says, I am blameless of this. And then he proceeds to show us what steadfast in duty really means. And this constitutes our basic message this morning. Look with me then at point number one. Steadfastness in duty is to be judged by a leader's attitude toward his ministry. We're talking about attitudes this morning. A leader's attitude toward his ministry. Look at verse 1. Would to God you would bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. Verse 2 and onwards, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. Now Paul was never a man to boast. Indeed he found the exercise utterly distasteful to him. But when challenged by his critics to prove his steadfastness in duty, he found it necessary to declare himself. And it sounded like boasting. So before he ever starts, he apologizes that he has to indulge in even vindicating his apostleship. So he commences by asking his readers to bear with him while he indulges in what he calls the foolishness of boasting. Then he proceeds to show that this attitude toward his ministry was characterized by two things. And fellow Christians here this morning Oh, how I trust these words will burn into my soul and into yours. Two things. What is it that constitutes the real attitude of a Christian leader? Here it is. First of all, a jealousy for the church of Christ. A jealousy for the church of Christ. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I might present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Fundamentally, Paul wasn't concerned about his own glory. Oh, no. But he was intensely burdened about the glory of Christ in the church at Corinth. He had won these Corinthians to a personal faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he did not consider that winning them to Christ and incepting the church at Corinth completed his ministry. Oh no, he was going to follow right through. His longing was to see the glory of Christ manifested in a maturity and a fidelity within that church. And if God has given me any burden at all, to preach from this pulpit and across the airwaves to our country today, particularly in the ministry of radio, it's just that. I've got a longing and a deep desire to see maturity and fidelity established in the church of Jesus Christ. The greatest need of the hour is for a God-sent revival. 
And the only revival that God is ever going to send from heaven is upon a praying people who are mature enough and faithful enough to pray that revival down. And the only thing that's going to stem the tide of evil in our country today is the invasion of God himself. And Paul was jealous about that. And so am I. And so should you be. Jealous with a holy and a godly jealousy. He wanted the masters well done at the heavenly judgment seat. So he speaks of a godly jealousy which filled his heart. He had espoused these Corinthians, notice, to one husband. One husband. But he looked on to the day when he would present that same local church as a chaste virgin to Christ before the glory of his throne with exceeding joy. In writing in this manner, of course, Paul was employing a vivid picture of a Jewish wedding. At such Jewish weddings, there were people who were called the friends of the bridegroom. Such persons had many duties, but the most important one was the guaranteeing of the purity and chastity of the bride until the moment of marriage. And this is what Paul has in mind here. In the marriage of Jesus Christ to the Corinthian church, he considered himself to be the friend of the bridegroom. And it was therefore his duty before God to ensure the purity of the bride until the coming of the Lord. Paul felt it his own personal pastoral responsibility to see that when he presented that church to the Lord Jesus in a coming day, it would be a, a pure bride, a chaste virgin. Notice his emphasis, therefore, on espousing the Corinthians to one husband. Will you underline the one there? One husband. By what an indictment that is on the church of Jesus Christ that hobnobs with the world and has many husbands. No wonder James in his epistle says to the Christians who are living in that way, ye adulteresses. One husband. And that husband, Jesus Christ. It's here also that by any means their minds might be corrupted from the simplicity that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Satan beguiled Eve through his subtlety in the unsullied precincts of Eden's paradise, so once again the serpent could strike in the less congenial surroundings of a Corinthian city. So with a jealousy born of the Holy Ghost, he expresses the earnest desire that the Corinthian saints might be preserved in a single-hearted devotion to Jesus Christ until the day when the church would be presented without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. It is well that members of a local church, whether you represent Calvary Baptist Church here this morning or churches across our land, it is well that all members here should very carefully weigh these words of the Apostle Paul. For I want to tell you, when they see or sense the jealousy and fervency of a pastor who presses the claims of God's holiness upon believers, don't blame him. Read Paul. If Paul could say, I have a holy jealousy, I am committed to God to present you at Corinth as a chaste virgin, one husband, not two, not three, but one husband, a pure virgin, I want to present you. And I'm not going to be satisfied until that happens. 
If any pastor is worth his salt, if any preacher is worth his salt, then he's going to have the same burden about the people to whom he ministers. And to me, the greatest need in America today is not more evangelism. Thank God for every evangelist, and I am primarily an evangelist. God called me supremely to the evangelistic thrust, and I'm never happier than when I'm preaching the gospel, but I'm telling you the burden that God has laid upon my heart here in America is to Christianize the Christian, as Kierkegaard put it, to Christianize the Christian, to bring Christians into that holiness of life and devotion to Jesus which becomes a true virgin and a chaste virgin. And it's only through the preaching of the word of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit that this can be achieved. But more than this, Paul expresses here not only a jealousy for the church of Christ, but notice, secondly, a loyalty to the truth of Christ. A loyalty to the truth of Christ. Look at verse 4. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. What is Paul saying? With a touch of irony and sarcasm here, he's telling them that false teachers had invaded the church at Corinth, using evangelical language to disguise both the content and intent of their erroneous teaching. And Paul is gravely concerned about this. And he asks his readers how it is that they can be so tolerant to accept such traitors to the gospel while they have hesitancy in receiving him back to the church. He reminds them that whatever they thought of these super apostles, which is the exact word he's using here, these super apostles, he wasn't a whit behind them. For while it's true that he didn't have the polished preaching and the professional rhetoric of some of these super apostles, as he called them. He wasn't a whit behind them. And in any case, God had given him a far deeper insight in the knowledge of spiritual things. Look at verse 6. He'd already reminded them in his first epistle that the preaching of the cross was to them that perish foolishness. But unto them which are saved it is the power of God. And that it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe... He reminded them also that when he came to Corinth, his speech was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. And Paul says, however crude my preaching may be, however rugged it may be, however lacking in the fine arts of rhetoric and polish, I want to tell you that through this means God has seen fit to save men and women. And what matters is not so much how the words are clothed, not the tone of the voice, not the actions of the arms, not the brilliance of an orator. What really matters is the demonstration of the spirit and power. In response to such a ministry, a church had been founded. A church had come into existence and not one of those so-called super apostles, those traitors, those Judaizers had done anything to build that church. He had built that church. The only setback that they'd experienced at all was because of these very intruders, these detractors, these critics of the apostle. Now many a godly pastor has the same concern today. 
Silver-tongued orators who are nothing more than professional preachers invade the assembly of God's people and in the language of Paul, by good words and fair speeches, deceive the hearts of the simple. But the true test of steadfastness in duty, my beloved friends here this morning, is a leader's attitude to the ministry. And what is it? I'll tell you. Jealousy for the church of Christ. Loyalty to the truth of Christ. That is the supreme test. Jealousy for the church of Christ. Loyalty to the truth of Christ. These are the questions that need to be answered without hesitancy or compromise. Can I say I am loyal to the church of Christ? Can I say I am absolutely loyal to the truth of Christ? With the Apostle Paul, we've got to say yes, Lord, if we're true leaders at all. And I'm not only talking about pulpit leaders. I'm talking about deacons. I'm talking about elders. I'm talking about Sunday school teachers. I'm talking about you on committees. I'm talking of you in the home, you at the executive desk, you in the college and university. Loyalty to the truth of Christ. Jealousy for the church of Christ. But Paul takes us further, and in the second place, he shows that the steadfastness in duty must be judged not only by a leader's attitude to the ministry, but a leader's attitude to his salary. And this is very interesting. And Paul is so practical, and that's exactly what he's talking about. Would you please look at verses 7 and 8, and also 9 through 12? He says, Have I committed an offense in abasing myself? that ye might be exalted because I preached to you the gospel of God freely. I robbed other churches, taking wages of them in order to serve you. Now it's one thing to evaluate a man's attitude to the ministry, but quite another thing to examine his attitude to his salary. It is common knowledge that many who launch out into the gospel work as promising preachers come to an untimely end because of their lust for money. So Paul tackles this delicate but important aspect of one's duty in the Christian ministry. Analyzing the questions he asks in this paragraph, we might deduce the following two points. And I'm telling you, they're pretty searching. Here is the first one. And it applies not only to your pastor preaching here this morning, but to all of us who are engaged in Christian work. And I want to tell you that you're engaged in Christian work whether you're in so-called full-time work or whether you're working behind that desk in that shop or lecturing in that school or working in that executive office. Here are the two tremendous searching questions. Does salary determine my motive for preaching the gospel? Or to put it in another form, salary must never determine my motive for preaching the gospel. Says Paul, have I committed an offense in abasing myself that ye might be exalted because I preached the gospel to you freely? When Paul went to Corinth, he made it very clear that he wasn't coming for their money. Now, that wasn't because he didn't believe that a servant of the Lord ought to receive a remuneration. Not at all. As a matter of fact, if you study the first Corinthian letter, Paul makes this manifestly clear. That every preacher deserves a remuneration. Every preacher 
deserves support. Every preacher deserves a salary. He says, it is written in the law of Moses, thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out a corn. And here's the picture of God's servant like that faithful, patient, sacrificial ox treading out the corn. Treading out the corn that he might take the chaff and throw it away and then feed the people with the corn, the rich wheat. And says the Apostle Paul, remember the law of Moses. You don't muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Just as he's allowed to partake of that which he is ministering to others, so you don't forget the ministers who come and feed you on the fine wheat. Again, he says, do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live, the things of the t live by the things of the temple, and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live by the gospel. But the strange thing is this, that while he was in Corinth, Paul stoutly refused to receive any remuneration from the Corinthians. This is what rankled some of the believers in that church. Paul was not being inconsistent, however, for as far as we know, he never accepted a gift from any church while he was actually living in the neighborhood. He only did this after he moved on. He founded the church at Philippi, as we shall see in a moment, and they ministered to him again and again, but only after he had left. The point is this, that he would not be in any man's debt. He wanted to be independent. He didn't want to be under any sense of obligation. He was determined that his salary would never motivate his preaching of the gospel. Now we can understand this because Paul was founding brand new churches. The situation in a sense has changed in our time because people know that this is how the churches run and people are acquainted with the truth. But Paul was moving into heathen situations, founding churches where a church never existed before. And he was afraid that the pagans would look upon him and say, I know why this man is here. He's out for money, that's all. He's out for money. Now, this involves tremendous discipline, as you'll see from this passage right now. There was the discipline of trusting God. Paul says, I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. And that word robbed is an interesting word. It's a word which means ravaged, plundered. The strength of this word shows something of the intensity of feeling that Paul had as he smarted under the criticism of his detractors at Corinth. He said, if I only could tell you how I had to rob other churches in order to serve you. It was not, it was not as if Paul didn't believe in receiving gifts, but he wasn't going to receive gifts from those who might blame him that he only did it in order to be rich, he only preached the gospel in order to receive a salary. And so he worked with his hands while he was there at Corinth. And when he didn't work with his hands, he prayed his heavenly father who never failed him. We know that the church at Philippi communicated with him again and again. He speaks of it as fellowship in the gospel. But there was a discipline involved here in trusting God. Secondly, there was a discipline in suffering need. Look at verse 9. He says, when I was present with you and wanted, underscore that word wanted, underline that word wanted, I was chargeable to no man. 
The verb shows that he had experienced a sad condition of extreme poverty and financial intense need. But even at the supreme moment of trial, he wouldn't tell the Corinthians, he wouldn't say to them, I'm starving. Not once did he open his mouth to them. He uses a word, in fact, which is fascinating. He says he was not chargeable to them, and that word chargeable is, I repeat, fascinating. It's the word from which we get the word paralysis. It's the word that is used to describe the electric eel, the torpedo fish, which paralyzes its victim on contact and then exploits the victim. So Paul says, even though I was in desperate need, I did not paralyze you with my sob story and then exploit your pity. I didn't do it. What discipline was manifested? But more than this, there was not only the discipline of trusting God and the discipline of facing need, but there was the discipline of losing face. Have I committed an offense, he says, in abasing myself that ye might be exalted because I preached to you the gospel of God freely? In Paul's time, it was beneath a freeman's dignity to work with his hands. And yet Paul worked with his hands until they were rough. Furthermore, teachers were supposed to make money while they were lecturing. Dr. William Barclay remarks, there was never an age in which a man could talk and earn so much money. Never an age in which a man who could talk could earn so much money. So before the Corinthian believers as well as the false teachers, Paul debased himself. He had lost face. In fact, his critics implied that because the Apostle Paul refused to receive anything, his message was not worth anything. Here then we see the strength of character that marked this matchless apostle of 2,000 years ago. What a challenge it is to you and to me as we seek to serve our Lord Jesus Christ. Can we honestly say from the depths of our hearts, I preach the gospel because I must preach the gospel, not because of anything I get out of it. And the principle goes farther than salary. Why do you teach your Sunday school class? Why do you preach on the mission field, missionary friend? Why do some of you pastors here Preach behind the pulpit. Is it because of what you get out of it or just because the gospel is the gospel? And it's got to get out. But there's something else here. Salary must never determine our motive for preaching the gospel. But secondly, salary must never determine our motive for loving the people. Look at the next verse. As the truth of Christ is in me, verses 10 and 11. No man shall stop me of this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Wherefore, why? I'll tell you, he says. Because I love you not, God knoweth. God knoweth. Paul is telling his readers that his convictions are so strong that nothing's ever going to change him, notwithstanding the pressures and the slander of his critics. But at the same time, he's making clear that this does not affect his love for the converts. Whether or not he received any money from them in no way affected his devotion to them. It's certainly a sad day when money determines whether I'm drawn to certain people or like certain people. I'm to love them not because of what I get from them or what they say to me or their praises. I love them just because God is love. 
And God loves people who don't return the love. This is the quality of the agape. This is the quality of the divine love that loves people in spite of people spitting in the face. Not because of money, not because of reputation, not because of popularity. You love people because you love people of the love that God has given you. I was positively shocked not to say grieved in my spirit a little while ago when a man said to me that he wouldn't return to a certain place because the people hadn't paid him enough. In relating this story, I'm not suggesting for a moment that the lack of liberality on the part of those people was excusable. As far as I'm concerned, it was thoroughly blameworthy. For the scripture says, let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him the teacheth. And that goes for everyone here. Anyone who's ministered to by the word of God should pay back in terms of cash, says the Bible. Not because the preacher needs it or wants it. Not to draw admiration from the preacher or devotion from the preacher. Not a bit of it. But because it's your duty to pay for the gospel. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto that person in good things. That's a law of scripture. And not to fulfill it is to mock God. For it comes right in that scripture. It says God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth that shall he also reap. You can't thumb your nose at God. As the original has it there. And God takes notice of anyone who comes and gets a full blessing. Through the preaching of the word of God. And goes out giving a dime. God watches that. You can't escape it. However. Having seen that. Paul is not. Suggesting for a moment, as I've pointed out, that these must be motives for preaching the gospel. My salary mustn't determine how I preach the gospel. My salary mustn't determine how I love the people. That's what Paul is saying. That's the test of true leadership. A leadership was completely altruistic. Well, where does it all come from? Where does it all come from? Let me tell you, my friend. Preaching the gospel and loving the people derive their inspiration from the very heart of God. And a man who lives in the presence of God, a man who sees the beatific vision, a man who has the fullness of the Spirit, a man who has the anointing of the Spirit, a man who has the open book, a man who burns in his soul with a fire to get the gospel out, is completely unaffected by whether he's praised or whether he's not praised. Whether he's paid or whether he's not paid, the gospel must get out. The world is going to hell and needs a message, and we've got to get it out. One last word I want to say to you this morning, and it's also right here in our text. A leader's attitude to his salary reveals far more than we see on the surface. It really decides whether or not a man is true or false in his steadfastness in duty. But steadfastness in duty is not only judged by a man's attitude to the ministry, a man's attitude to the salary, but finally notice, steadfastness in duty is evidenced by a leader's attitude toward his enemy. Now watch very carefully here. Look at verses 13 through 15. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, whose end shall be according to their works. Now, in the first two points, we had a searching word to us concerning the attitude to our ministry and our salary. 
But to me, this is the supreme test of Christian steadfastness in leadership as well as service. Before we go any further, I want to point out that Paul's attitude in these two verses in no way contradicts our Lord's words concerning loving our enemies. When Jesus said that we're to love our enemies, he meant that we're to love them as persons, but certainly not love their ways or their sins. But the context here and the circumstances are completely different. Paul is describing Satan in his subtle and strategic method of undermining the work of God, destroying the church of Jesus Christ. So he describes what should be the leader's attitude to his enemy. And once again, it's twofold. Will you notice it with me as we close this morning? Verse 13. A leader must expose the nature of the enemy. A Christian leader must expose the nature of the enemy. Verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. In a day of tolerance and compromise, these words sound strange and severe. But Paul minces no words. Indeed, as one of the church fathers puts it, Bengal by name, Paul calls a spade a spade. He describes these Judaizers who had invaded the church at Corinth as pseudo-apostles instead of super-apostles. This apparently is another of Paul's coined words. But he not only called them pseudo-apostles, but deceitful workers. Look at the word. Deceitful workers. The thought is that they were workers who had cheated their employers. They were taking money from the church. Yes, if you please. Blaming Paul for not taking it, but taking it themselves and making themselves rich while they actually undermine the church of Jesus Christ at Corinth. And he tells the Corinthian believers not to marvel at this. Why? For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. As William Barclay puts it, their Christianity is a superficial dress, but underneath there is no reality. The synod of the Church of Uganda drew up the following statement by which a man might examine himself and test the reality of his Christianity. This is in Africa. Point one. Do you know the salvation which comes through the cross of Jesus Christ? Point two, are you growing in the power of the Holy Spirit in prayer, meditation, and the knowledge of God? Point three, is there a great desire to spread the kingdom of God by example and by preaching and teaching? Point four, are you bringing others to Christ by individual searching, by visiting, and by public witness. Here are four tests, simple tests, but four tests by which you and I can challenge our lives as well as those who parade as preachers of the gospel in our day. Our task is to expose the nature of the enemy. And I want to just say a word before I move on here. Ask God, beloved, to give you a spirit of discernment as you listen to radio. To give you a spirit of discernment as you view television. To give you a spirit of discernment as you sit in church. Lest you begin to pay false teachers 
unless you begin to pay those who've transformed themselves into angels of light but actually are false prophets. Millions and millions of dollars in our country today are going to support liberal theology and anything but the truth of Jesus Christ as it is founded in this beloved book. And your task is to expose that which is false. And just as strongly I want to urge, these are dark days in which we live. I don't know how much longer we're going to have to preach the gospel even here in the United States of America. And I'm speaking to that very subject tonight. But whether it's long or short, I want to say that the days are urgent and we should give everything we have, literally everything we have, to make the gospel go and we're to give it to that which is alive, ablaze with God, anointed by the Spirit, sweet, true, fundamental, and evangelical. In the second place, I want you to notice that a Christian leader must not only expose the nature of the enemy, but disclose the future of the enemy. What do you mean, the future of the enemy? Cast your eye down at verse 15, whose end shall be according to their works. However much false teachers may seem to flourish in every age, their destiny and destruction are almost certainly assured. Paul teaches in no uncertain fashion that a day is coming when judgment is going to fall upon those who seek to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Listen to these words taken from the epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians. It is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in the saints and to be admired in all them that believe. Other passages could be added. But that in itself is sufficient to show that a day is coming where they're going to be judged according to their works. This is the kind of warning that preachers should give to the false teachers of our day. Commenting on this, Professor Tasker quotes this wonderful little story. It's stirring. It shook me. It made me wonder whether or not I shouldn't examine again just how strong I am. Not only in exposing the nature but disclosing the future of false teachers. Listen to this. It is recorded that Arrhenius went to the great man of God, Polycarp, the saintly bishop of Smyrna, and asked him a question about how he faced false teachers. And Polycarp responded that when accosted by the heretic Marcion with the question, do you recognize me? Marcion, the heretic, asked the question, Do you recognize me? Polycarp, God's servant, replied, I recognize you as the firstborn of Satan. And Irenaeus adds, So great was the fear of the apostles and their disciples, lest they should speak a single word of fellowship to those who adulterated the truth. In his second epistle, the aged apostle John warns his converts in no uncertain manner. 
He says, for many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth or goes beyond or advances in any kind of theology, like the God is dead movement or anything else, who goes beyond and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, hath not God. If any come unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house. Neither bid him God speed. For he that biddeth him God speed is partaker of his evil deeds. So we see that a leader's attitude toward his enemy is first to expose the nature of the enemy and then disclose the future of the enemy. This is steadfastness in duty. So we have seen in these opening verses of chapter 11 something of the vehemency and severity of a man who's longing to see leaders emerge in his generation. To quote Bengal again, Paul is calling a spade a spade. And we're not steadfast in duty if we're less stalwart and resolved in our attitude to the Christian service in which we're engaged. Someone has said that the real test of genuine Christianity is not a man's action, but a man's reaction. Let us make sure that our attitude, our reaction towards such issues as the ministry, the salary, the enemy, is not only clear, not only confident, but supremely Christ-like. Beloved friends, on this day, when we celebrate the outgoing of the message of the Word of God through a medium which God has allowed men to devise, even to the far ends of the earth. Oh, I look around this audience and I see young people and I see older ones, and you are the leaders of tomorrow and some of you are the leaders of today. God bring you into the context, into the climate of this amazing passage. And God make you men and women, yes, and young people who are totally sold out to Jesus Christ in such a way that your attitude to the ministry is one of a jealousy for the church of Christ, a loyalty to the truth of Christ. To the matter of salary as being unimportant as against the supreme urgency of getting out the message. And to the enemy as being absolutely uncompromising in exposing his error disclosing his future and preaching the truth until Jesus comes again. Oh God, make us faithful. Faithful, steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for his name's sake. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.